Welcome to Dean's Council, a podcast aimed at supporting university leaders holding one of the more critical jobs on university campus. Your panelists, Ken Kring, Jim Ellis, and Dave Eikenberry, engage in conversation with highly accomplished deans and other academic leaders regarding the ever-complex array of challenges deans face in one of the loneliest and most unique jobs in the academy. Chuck Whiteman is an experienced academic leader. Prior to joining the Smeal College of Business at Penn State University, Chuck held several leadership roles at the University of Iowa's Tippy School of Business. Upon arriving at Penn State in 2011, Chuck faced a series of challenges arriving at the same time due to the Sandusky scandal, which was rocking the university. In the face of these turbulence and as an outsider to Smeal, Chuck needed to do what any new dean faces, form a new leadership team that they can rely on. He also needed to build plans for how the college could adapt financially as university priorities shifted. This involved him exploring the capabilities of his faculty and nudging them to accept new ideas for allowing Smeal to drive innovation and institutional success. In this podcast, we hear from Chuck as to how he faced these challenges on the University Park campus and how humor on occasion helped break the ice. Well, Chuck, thank you for joining us today from Happy Valley. Uh, I'm glad to be here. Uh, it's uh, intermittently dreary and blazing sunshine, which is kind of typical Happy Valley weather. Yeah, for this time of the year. Well, I uh, thank you for joining us today. You've been at uh, Smeal for over a decade now, I believe. I want to take you back to... Um, the summer of 2012, and walk us through the um, that transition, that mental transition that you went through as you as you made the leadership journey from from Iowa to Penn State uh, to take on the, uh, your first deanship at, at Smeal. Sure. Um, let me begin by setting the context for that move. The previous fall, when I was talking to Penn State as part of the search process, it's a pretty big scandal broke. Uh, it's known as the Sandusky scandal. Uh, had to do with sexual misconduct by a former coach. And the, the university was still kind of reeling uh, from that. And I can remember as part of the dean search process, when I met with the Council of Academic Deans, uh, one of the questions posed by the, the senior member of the University Park Dean uh, group was, why Penn State? And my, my reaction was kind of the gut reaction is, what do you mean? It's Penn State for crying out loud. Iowa had gone through something that was kind of similar to what Penn State went through a few years earlier while I was senior associate dean. And uh, so it was more sexual misconduct this time by football players uh, involving the female athlete in a dorm room. This was something that was on the front page of the Des Moines Register virtually every day for a year. Uh, the Dean of Students and the University General Council both lost their jobs. The president was nearly ousted. The sexual uh, misconduct policy was ripped up and rewritten from the ground up. And the place they had a couple of years to actually apply it. And largely the scandal at Iowa was behind it by that time. And so I knew coming in that a strong university like Penn State was gonna get over this. 
so with, with that, I'm coming into a situation where people are kind of wary. And I, I think I was well equipped. Uh, so the first thing I'll say about the transition is I had spent six years as the senior associate dean at Iowa. And the arrangement that I had with my boss, the dean, Kurt Hunter, uh, was more or less implicit, but um, when he came in, he wanted, he had been a very successful fundraiser as a sitting dean at Connecticut. He wanted to face externally. So he gave me all the internal stuff. So I, I effectively functioned as a chief operating officer for the college. And even people that nominally reported to the dean functionally reported to me. So I remember in the early years at Penn State, many, many times, uh, a situation would arise and I would say it's deja vu all over again. So having a good set of uh, experiences prior to becoming a dean, I think is certainly in my case was very valuable. You know, like the, the first serious uh, HR messy situation I had at Penn State, more or less duplicated one that I had dealt with at Iowa. Uh, I suppose that's coincidental, but it was, it was great preparation. A couple of other things I'll say about the, about the transition. First off, uh, assembling the right team uh, is very important. I faced a couple, I knew these were coming, but a couple of resignations uh, amongst the associate dean ranks pretty early on. So within six months of arriving, I was replacing the senior associate dean and the associate dean for undergraduate education. And this, this was by design. They had, they had both uh, served extra time after a failed search the year before. Uh, and they had told me up front that they, they fully planned to step down uh, after my first semester. But that was difficult, but it was also an opportunity. Uh, and so in both cases, <laughs> I'll say in retrospect, I made great choices for those two associate dean positions. And, and really having, having a good team uh, that you trust is a, a great stress reducer because it means that you don't have to make all the decisions yourself. Uh, I find that uh, having, uh, having a good team in place uh, is really, uh, really beneficial uh, from that uh, standpoint. And, and another thing that I'll say is worth paying attention to is you don't really build a team at least I didn't in my experience, until I became dean. And so it was, that was a place where I did not have experience. So recognizing the strengths and weaknesses of the team that I inherited, that actually took me a little time. There, there were some subsequent changes to, to the membership of the team that were important uh, for us to make the kind of progress uh, that, that we have. Was that challenging because you came in as an outsider or did you, did it just kind of flow naturally for you, Chuck? Well, I, I would say that it was a little rocky for me because uh, I encountered uh, in some cases personalities uh, that hadn't been that prevalent in my previous uh, position. And it took me a while to figure out what personalities might not fit and who had them. Uh, so yeah, I would say that uh, it took a little getting used to. The other thing uh, that's a difference between the position I left and the position I came into uh, is that at Penn State, we have been in a state of excess demand more or less forever. 
that was not the case at Iowa. At Iowa, I did not have students constantly calling me up saying, uh, I'm two tenths, uh, yeah, two tenths of a grade point away from the major that I want. Can you just let me over the bar? But I get those calls all the time at Penn State. And so when I, when I first arrived and I said, well, one of the things I need to do is I, I need to try to make a difference on the bottom line of the college. And the first thing I tried was uh, an idea that I had pitched at Iowa uh, before leaving. And that was, uh, you know, if we can uh, increase the size of the college by, I don't know, call it 500 students or something, Mr. Provost, if you'll let us keep a substantial fraction of that, I can do great things. And I was surprised uh, to learn that the faculty were not in favor of that, even if it meant more colleagues. And the reason was that they had been dealing with this excess demand for so long, they couldn't imagine getting bigger uh, than that, uh, even if the money came strapped to the students' backs. So uh, I, I had to pivot and short of selling that idea to the provost, the other ready-made way for uh, a dean at uh, Penn State University Park to affect the bottom line of his or her college uh, was to expand online offerings because the revenue sharing model there was Old Main, which is our you know, center of campus, the, the font of all knowledge uh, at Penn State. Old Main would apply a tax rate and then we got to keep everything else. We got to keep the rest of the revenue and of course, all the costs. But the tax rate was sufficiently favorable that that business is one that we could run. Now, how to get people to help me do that. So basically what I'm doing is I'm instead of getting actual students, now I'm gonna go after virtual students. And the faculty seem less concerned about that. So, uh, the next thing was to get ideas about what kinds of programs uh, to, uh, to run. And during my second year, we were rewriting the strategic plan. And I thought it would be a good idea for us to revisit incentives uh, that our department chairs faced in terms of program development. And I'll describe what it looked like uh, first. Uh, and then I'll talk about the reality of the situation and how we changed things. It looked like uh, for the one kind of area where the, the college could affect its own bottom line uh, in online education, which was because the, the university set a tax rate that was reasonable and we could, uh, we could function as businesses in that uh, arena and do good things. Uh, so if we take the, the part of the uh, return that came to the college, and then how it got divided up between the dean's office and uh, the department chair. In this case, the department chair was in supply chain because we had a, an online certificate and an online master's program. And those were the only uh, online things we were doing. Well, with one tiny exception, but it looked like the dean's office was imposing a 70% tax rate. So 30% to the department, 70% to the dean. Now, if you, dug, if you opened up the hood and looked up, underneath what was going on. The reality was, can't run a program like that without faculty. Who's paying for the faculty? Well, it's the dean's office. So the, the reality of the situation was more like dean's office taking 30, department getting 30, and then the middle 40% was going for faculty strength 
to service the program in that department. So what we did was we just changed it from implicit to explicit uh, because when the department saw that they were going to get 70% of which 40%, that middle 40% was reserved for faculty strength, the department chairs started doing backflips uh, and uh, they came up with wonderful, wonderful ideas for programs uh, that we could create, stand up and turn profitable fairly quickly. So from when I came to Penn State, we had five professional graduate programs, uh, the regular MBA, the executive MBA, a master's of accounting, and then these two online programs in supply chain. If you count what we've got now, we've got 33, uh, of which 17 are certificate programs and the rest are full-blown master's programs. And I, I'm not gonna uh, split hairs here. I had an important role in several of those programs, but by no means did I have an important role to play in the development of even a majority of them. It came organically from department chairs responding to incentives. And while having that set of incentives uh, in place meant that a whole lot of decisions were, were kind of on automatic pilot, people responding to great incentives, producing these great programs. And it, it absolutely made an enormous difference in the financial health of the college. Um, so uh, to recap, I guess, in, in terms of transition, uh, I, uh, I thought a lot about the team and the composition of the team and getting the right team in, in place. And then I had this brilliant idea that I didn't really recognize the brilliance of until after I did it uh, to put the incentives out there explicitly uh, and make them attractive to the department chairs. Interesting story. It sounds like you played, you certainly played to your strength. You're an economist. You, you understand incentives. You also were battle tested at Iowa, as we know. Um, and so you had a sense of sort of working the uh, working the group as a whole. Um, interesting to hear the pivot and that it took a while to get to that to get to that pivot. But unpack for us a little bit about sort of in, in the academy, we know that you can have a great idea, but it can't necessarily be owned as your great idea. Sort of how did you use communications? How did you use transparency to get the kind of buy-in that you, that you got? Yeah, you know, buy-in was, uh, was an issue. Uh, and I'll, I'll kind of answer your question by, by telling an anecdote. Uh, when we were rewriting the strategic plan, another thing that I put in there was uh, I wanted to move the core of the MBA program online. And so we had numerous discussions of this in the strategic planning committee, as well as the executive committee of the college. I can remember an executive committee meeting where we were talking about this. And one of the department chairs sort of figuratively slammed his fist down on the conference table and said, I'm never putting my course online. It'll never be as good online as it is in person. And I said, uh, I won't name the name, but uh, to this department chair, I said, it doesn't have to be as good as you in person. It just has to be better than anybody else online. And that was, I think, the beginning of convincing him uh, that this might, might be a good thing. And if you look at the record of that department, particularly under that department chair, in developing new programs to go online, they're, they probably did more of it than any other department. 
And it was a combination of, you know, you just have to be better than everybody else and the incentives that we put in place. It also took some time. So that conversation was probably in the spring of 2014. And the bulk of the online development uh, started in earnest in the fall semester of 2017. So there were a lot of one-on-one conversations with department chairs and senior faculty uh, about doing this. And, you know, I, I found myself saying, you know, we do these things and they're successful financially. It, it, it's not that I'm going to get better furniture. <laughs> you know, it's, we're not going to spend it on stuff like that. We're going to spend it on faculty. Uh, and they could see that, I think they could see that uh, I was serious about that because we increased the size of the faculty pretty noticeably uh, shortly after these programs started. Uh, and, uh, and the other thing is uh, we invested in the faculty in the form of markedly increased travel and research budgets. Uh, we used uh, some of the proceeds, early proceeds of these programs uh, to make market salary adjustments to, believe it or not, three dozen people who had not recently been marked to market. So it, it was not just communication, but it was also basically reinvesting in the, the quality of the faculty in a, in a noticeable way. Interesting. And then once you got the team together, what kind of incentives did you use? What kind of uh, performance measurement? Sort of how did you keep that team uh, performing at a high level? There's not a huge amount of it that's really needed. So I, I didn't need to prod anybody. We did... Uh, uh, I simplify the performance review process um, because I, I, I came into a situation where uh, I was using the, or the college was using the standard HR performance review tool for academic administrators. And I myself was being reviewed by the provost using his own tool, which was put together two pages what you said you were gonna do last year and what you got done, and then a set of goals for the coming year and we'll talk about it. Uh, So I said to my academic administrators, okay, do that uh, instead of uh, what we had been doing. And and people liked that. Uh, The other thing was I had a lot of flexibility uh, to use the the new uh, net revenue in-stream that came into the college as a result of all these programs uh, to make compensation adjustments. Uh, and I made a number of them. Uh, so, you know, the past few years, like many other places, we've had a lot of centralized scrutiny on things like that. Uh, but as we were developing these new programs, I didn't have those constraints. Uh, so once I got the money, uh, we not only invested in faculty, but we invested in the, the members of the team. So they're they're pretty happy. I've had... Uh, I would say relatively little turnover uh, in the leadership team and uh, the, what turnover I've had uh, for the most part has been special cases that don't have anything to do with the atmosphere amongst the, amongst the leaders. Chuck, do you worry that uh, uh, the mothership at Old Main is going to uh, change up your revenue share agreements on these online programs? Funny you should ask that question. We will have a new budget model at Penn State by Thanksgiving. 
Uh, okay. We've been working on it since late July. <laughs> Do the math. I don't think anybody has ever developed a budget model for a university this size in that short a period of time. Right, right. Do you worry, though, that it's going to you know, cut your knees out in terms of all these repairs that you've been able to make? Or do you, you think you see a, a hold harmless approach that'll carry you through? Uh, I don't know about hold harmless, but uh, I'm optimistic that the direction that we're moving will serve the business school well. And the, the direction we're moving is uh, a, a tighter um, connection between uh, student credit hour generation and student headcount on the one hand and resource flows on the other. So historically we operated with a centrally managed uh, allocation model uh, that was incremental. Uh, so this was funding the, the bulk of what we do, uh, resident undergraduate instruction and legacy resident uh, graduate programs. And so there was very little connection between uh, our workload and our allocation. Now in the online arena that I talked about, the connection was explicit uh, and one that we could work with. So uh, with the new president recognizing that we have a budget deficit that we have to deal with, she has set us in motion on this development of a new budget model with a, a charge to come up with something that recognizes credit hours and student headcount. So I, I think for us, I think we'll be okay. But I, I can assure you that we will respond to whatever incentives are there. And if, if there's anything perverse to it, we'll do our best to bring, up, uh, bring that up with the, uh, the leadership. You know, I'm going to go a little rogue here, gang. I, having known uh, Chuck, for a long time, I know that there are a lot of things at face value uh, from experience, you know, your, your calm demeanor, your data-driven, uh, incentives-oriented uh, perspective. I also know that you have a wicked sense of humor that comes in a very dry uh, delivery. I'm just sort of wondering, you know, how has that sense of humor uh, incorporated its way? Have you been able to use it? Are there examples of ways in your uh, both leadership, both within SMEAL and within the university that, um, you know, that little, that cleverness on your part may, uh, may find its way into the dialogue? Well, thank you very much uh, for that uh, wonderful compliment, Ken. Uh, <laughs> I would say, uh, yes, I have uh, been able to call upon it from time to time. You've known me for a long time, so you, you might remember, maybe it took you a little while to get used to it. <laughs> uh, and I think it probably did people in the Smeal community as well. Uh, I will say that, that um, when I went through my first five-year review a little over five years ago, maybe some of the elements of we're not sure we really get him came through. And uh, what I will say is that the, the last one, if I could, at the beginning of the review process, if I could have paid for the review that I wound up getting, I would have done it because uh, it was uh, it was really uh, quite positive. You know, my uh, my humor is kind of situational, so I don't tell jokes. I, I have a really good friend who's a senior at the University of Pittsburgh, who's a great joke teller. I can't do that, but I can be reactive. 
and often will. Also, because it's it's reactive, it's harder to remember than jokes. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm not sure I can come up with any great examples uh, off the top of my head, but uh, it has been, uh, you know, it's been a good run. I think that the the people on the team who work for me like it. One of the things that that we did during the pandemic, which we've stuck with, is you know in the early days of the pandemic, the news was coming so fast and furious. You had to have more or less a real time way of communicating with everybody. And so, uh, in the within a week or two of the pandemic, we started doing these hour long town halls uh, on Zoom once a week. Uh, and <laughs> after two years of that, people said, you know, maybe we don't need these every week, but every other week would be good. Uh, and by the time we had gotten to that point, they these sessions had, had kind of morphed from us delivering information to people that needed it to the, the entire community or as many wished to, to participate got to see the university, sorry, the, the college leadership, you know, talking about issues that we were facing and, and making decisions in real time. And we got a lot of really positive feedback from people saying, you know, we understand better than we ever have uh, what's going on in the college, how you're thinking about things, that, that sort of stuff. And they would say, you know, before we started these town halls, we would have a big meeting once a year and you would talk about what's going on in the call, and that would be the end of it. And there were always communications going out, but seeing the leadership operate in real time in that way uh, has been a wonderful thing. And I, I, I got a lot of positive feedback uh, from uh, faculty and staff uh, for doing those things. And, and they actually specifically uh, mentioned it in the, the second five-year review that I just completed in the spring. Chuck, that's an interesting uh, story there. We're coming up on the end of our uh, session. Let's kind of circle back to where we started on this idea of, of uh, planning for transitions. What, what advice, what one, two, three pieces of advice would you share with a, with a new leader coming into uh, this job from the outside? Uh, well, I guess I would, I would start with uh, get to know the team. For me, I needed to understand the idiosyncrasies of Penn State. Uh, and there, I think every institution has them. But this, this issue about uh, people being wary of uh, increasing the size of the undergraduate population, right? That was, that was something I, I needed to learn. I don't know how you, how you advise someone coming in to learn stuff like that, but probably listening for the first uh, at least several months is is a good idea. I did not do anything particularly drastic for a while. Uh, really, the, the big decisions early on were uh, those associate dean replacements. Uh, but I was pretty wary of doing anything beyond that kind of thing. Uh, that was those were necessities. You know, something Ken said, which I I think about a lot, but I don't articulate it very often, and that's. Um, play to your strengths. People have different different strengths, and and mine was going to be knowing where the margins are and how to incentivize production uh, of uh, new revenue. I also will say, in defense of the team model, 
I, I'm a firm believer in uh, Adam Smith and the idea of specialization. Uh, and you get good people who really know what they're doing uh, in the right places. Uh, and I think that's a, that's a great thing. So for example, I had a really good HR manager who was very attuned to best practices in HR. And uh, I, I just, I let her do her thing. And sometimes uh, it was a, really, you want us to do what? Uh, but it turned out to be the right thing uh, to do. Same thing with the other skill positions. So, you know, the associate dean that we hired in professional graduate education played a huge role in getting all of those 28 new programs uh, up and running. So ha- having him there was, was, uh, was terrific. I will tell you one thing that I'm, I'm thinking about and you'll chuckle about this one. Uh, I just uh, had a, a retreat with my board, my board of visitors, and we, we had a set of topics for the retreat. And then I had a kind of a catch-all topic of what's next. <laughs> and they sort of took that literally. And so they wanted to spend some time talking about succession planning, which I think universities are particularly poor at, particularly for positions like mine. Uh, because what's going to happen uh, when I, you know, hang up my spurs is that the faculty is going to want to play a very important role in the choice. Uh, the choice is going to be made by the provost. Uh, and uh, it would be coincidence if the person uh, is no candidate. It's possible, but it would be coincidence. And Ken, you've, you've participated with me on several searches where internal was not good. So I'm actually paying ever more attention to succession planning for the people who report to me, which I do think I might be able to do something about. I don't think I personally am going to have anything to do with succession planning for my successor. Uh, And I I think that's just the reality of the situation. But I can do something about uh, succession uh, for uh, associate deans. So I'm, I'm spending more time thinking about that. In, in terms of advice for a new person, I would say don't plan on having to think about that for five or six years. You know, uh, we just had a, a University Park dean uh, depart for, let's call it greener pastures, after four years. And you can't fault the, the individual for making that decision. But by the same token, if I, I think how much of what I have accomplished, I accomplished in the first four years. The answer is precious little of it because momentum builds. And I really think that there's a huge advantage uh, to longevity in, in the position. So uh, in, in terms of uh, advice for a newcomer, I would say uh, take a job that you're willing to stay in for six years because six is a, a, maybe about peak productivity in my, uh, in my history for how we were standing up programs and what was happening and all of that. Having developed 28 programs in five years, you know, you can't keep on that pace forever. There just aren't that many programs. <laughs> well, Chuck, thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time today. And uh, we look forward to seeing the next chapters that unfold in, uh, in Smeal. Well, thanks very much, Dave. It's really uh, great to uh, speak to uh, you and Ken. I appreciate it uh, very much. It's nice to see uh, old friends uh, and, uh, and maybe help some new, uh, new folks along with their journeys. 
What'd you think, Ken? That's very interesting. Chuck is able to go, you know, deeply into detail, but then also pull back and give some really interesting uh, perspective. I knew his humor would show through. And you can imagine that, you know, during tough situations, and he's dealt with some tough situations, uh, he brings uh, really a full, um, a full uh, toolbox. I thought one of the most interesting pieces came at the end of the conversation when he talked about, you know, longevity. And, you know, really, um, I mean, in, in, in a way, it reflected on how hard it is to get things done early on. And how you need to build, uh, you know, momentum through um, uh, both persistence and having, you know, better ideas uh, uh, will out. Very, very interesting. I mean, wonderful that he'll have done a second term and the second term, you know, is, uh, is more momentous than the first. I was really struck by this um conversation around shifting his uh, leadership style, this pivot that he referred to a couple different times. I think that is so critical in, uh, in, in being an effective leader. You know, you come in, you, particularly in his case, where he came in from the outside, he's got an agenda, but his agenda wasn't quite in sync with where the organization was ready to go. And he was... Um, he was open to this pivot, and I, I find that when I when I joined Colorado years ago, I was in that same scenario. I had a I had a vision of where I wanted to go, and in sometimes in some some cases along some dimensions that was going to be fine. But in particularly, uh, for example, that my leadership style I could not lead the way at Colorado. They were not ready to to have that approach and. And so being able to be flexible and take that course of action that you need to take, as opposed to just sticking with your own approach and, and ramming it through, I think that's such a, uh, such a compliment to, uh, to Chuck and, geez, uh, all of this work in uh, online uh, education and uh, graduate education for a faculty that sounded like it was kind of burned out when he showed up. Wow, what a, what a remarkable accomplishment. Oh, right. And to be able to characterize sort of the resistance and some of the, you know, challenges uh, without them sounding negative. I mean, he, he treated them like they were opportunities and he uh, not only pivoted, but he shifted, um, downshifted in terms of the timetable to get to some of the milestones, which was, you know, really, uh, really a mark of success. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dean's Council. This show is supported in part by Corn Ferry, leaders in executive search. Dean's Council was produced in Boulder, Colorado by Joel Davis of Analog Digital Arts. For a catalog of previous shows, please visit our website at deanscouncil.com. If you have any feedback for us, please let us know by sending an email to feedback at deanscouncil.com. And finally, Please hit follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast player so that you can automatically receive our latest show. 